Hello, and welcome to the Smart Karma Podcast. I'm Michael Tegos. Every week on the podcast, we share a presentation and discussion from our webinar Wednesdays when we sit down with Smart Karma Insight providers and selected experts from around the world to break down the key topics you care about in Asia's markets. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and so on. Thank you for being with us and enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Webinar Wednesday by Smart Karma. I'm Michael Tegos. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Sumit Singh, head of IPOs at Equitas Research, who will help us get uh, an overview of equity capital markets activity during uh, the busy time of, of the first half of 2021, and then take us through the second half IPO pipeline. Sumit, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, everybody, I'm sure, is eager to hear from you. So the floor is yours. Thank you, Raghu. And thank you for having me. And thanks to everybody who is uh, listening in. The topic for today's webinar is upcoming IPOs. But before I kind of jump into the topic, I want to cover two things. Uh, the first one is I'll give you a little bit of an introduction about Equitas, who we are, what we do. And then I'll spend a couple of minutes talking about what has already happened in 2021 before I kind of move on to what we can expect or a couple of deals that we like for the rest of the year. So a quick introduction to Equitas. We are a team of uh, four equity research analysts. We're based out of Singapore and Shanghai. Uh, most of us come from a sell-side equity research background. We have over 40 years of experience uh, between us. What do we cover? We cover uh, all IPOs and placements in emerging and developed Asia. So we cover uh, all deals with the minimum deal size of at least US dollar 100 million, all the way from India to Australia, Japan. We don't cover frontier markets like Vietnam, Bangladesh, etc. But uh, Hong Kong, India, all of ASEAN, all of Japan, increasingly more of Korea are all uh, kind of our bread and butter. How do we cover it? So we essentially divide our work across two main segments. One is IPOs and the other one is placements. For the IPOs, we do a lot of fundamental work uh, because we have a lot of time on our hands to do that. So we try to do a full analysis of the company. We try to do a peer comparison. We try to put up valuation notes kind of before the IPO actually gets launched. And once it's launched, we kind of also run uh, it through a quantitative framework, looking at IPOs from a very objective point of view. Our uh, second vertical is placements. What we do over there is a lot more quant-driven and a lot less fundamental-driven. The primary reason for that is uh, timing, obviously, because uh, we try to write from the time the deal is launched to publishing. We try to do it within a period of 90 minutes. Um, so it's a little, the window to write is a lot tighter than always five years. The content that we cover, as I mentioned, we write a lot of the stuff before trading, and then we kind of also cover some of the IPOs, especially the bigger ones, post listing as well. And then we cover up some events after um, the listing happens, like lockup expiry and some placements that follow on. What have we done so far? So we kind of started doing this in September 2014. Um, earlier, we used to be a part of the Smart Camera content team. We stayed there till about 2018 when we kind of spun out into our own independent form, which is now called Equitas Research and it's owned by the analysts themselves. So far, over the past uh, five years, we've covered a total of 600 IPOs. Our hit rate for those IPOs is about 74% across geographies. This is everything that we've covered in Asia and China area so far. 
On the placement side, we've covered about 758 placements, and our hit rate over there is a little bit lower, uh, towards 67%. What we provide essentially is independent analysis, and the reason I can say we are independent is because of the last column that you see on the slide on the right hand side. Uh, so historically, we've rated about 63% of the IPOs that we've covered as avoid, as in uh, we've told our clients not to take part in those IPOs. It's changed over the last two years, but as you can see, the ratio overall is still very high. So that ways we are independent from the kind of research that you get from the sell side banks that cover the deal. Uh, on the placement side, we're a lot more positive. Uh, we only said avoid for about 25% of the deals. I won't go into the nitty gritties of why that is so, but uh, as I it says, it's probably uh, kind of the right decision to be more positive on placements. That's about us. I'll now talk a little bit about what has happened in the year so far. Uh, it's been a very busy year, as all of you probably know. Uh, and as you've been seeing the headlines with multiple IPOs coming in. But if you actually look at this chart uh, on the slide, we as a team have covered about 61 IPOs this year. So if I projected on the chart, uh, which you can see on uh, the left-hand side of the slide, Equitas IPO performance, it doesn't look like it's a very, very busy year so far. But what the chart doesn't say is that uh, at the same time in 2020, we covered only about 38 deals, which is like 60% of what we've done. And in 2019, we covered about 50 deals, uh, which is again less than 2021. And what the chart also doesn't say is that the number of deals, number of big deals, as in the ones that are raising at least $1 billion this year have been way, way higher than what you would have seen in any of the previous years. Mostly what we've seen in the past, these bigger deals tend to come in the second half of the year, which is the busy period from, I would say, July to about November, and then it dies down in December. But this year, it's been right from the get-go with uh, Kwaishul and Kupang kicking it off in the early part of the year. And then DB and uh, Zumeto and Mondenison and others kind of following it up in the middle of the year. On the placement side, we've been a little less busy versus uh, last year, but uh, still quite a high number of deals. As you can see, for 2021, we've already almost crossed what we did in uh, 2018 and 2016. Now, the next slide gives you a little more uh, overview of how things have been shaping up this year. So what we projected in this slide is our participation in, as in how many deals Equitas kind of said, uh, asked investors to participate in, and how many deals, uh, how many placements we asked investors to participate in. As you can see, up till 2020, we were negative on most of the deals that we were covering. Then you see a big spike happening in 2020, and you see the spike kind of continuing in 2021. And even on the placement side, you see, although we already kind of rating 75% of our placements as participate, that is kind of hiked up to almost 85%. So essentially what this in the previous chart tells you together is for 2021, you've been getting a lot more deals, you've been getting bigger deals, and you've been getting better deals. Uh, better as in because of the way the market is, um, most of the deals have been performing well, even uh, especially the ones that have been of a bigger size. That's how the year has shaped up so far. I'm not going to the specifics of the deals, but before I kind of start talking about some of the stocks that we like and which would still come through for uh, the second half of the year, as we all know, there have been some kind of hiccups on the China ADR side uh, with the DD listing and the regulators coming out. There have also been hiccups in the recent uh, 
two weeks, I would say, on the China tech side with the regulators going after the big names. So what I've done for this pipeline is essentially I've tried to stay clear of the techniques because we don't know when they'll come, whether it might be the second half of the year, whether it could, whether these names could get postponed till even 2022, till kind of things settle down and the regulator gives an assurance that yeah, everything, all house cleaning has been done and now whatever is left is okay for now at least. So I'll talk about some of the non-tech names and I'll touch upon only one or two tech names which still might launch and I'll get to that why. So starting off with Hong Kong, because that's the biggest market in the region, these two companies are some, I've already filed and uh, obviously the deal is not live. Both of them are looking to raise about $1 billion. The first company that we like is Weelong Delicious. Um, it's a soy-based spicy snack food maker uh, in China. Uh, it's said to have about 5.7% market share in the spicy snack food market. Um, it's, the sales have been growing at about 20% out over the last few years. The profits have been doing better uh, as their margins have been improving. Why do we like the company apart from the sector and apart from the growth? Uh, the founders are relatively young. What I mean by that is normally what we've seen in markets when you get an FMCG kind of company coming to list, it's only, it takes a substantial amount of time for these companies to get going, especially if it's a new brand. So by the time they're listing, the founders are already like 50, 60 years old and they've kind of handed over the reins to maybe a professional CEO or uh, maybe in the second generation. But in this case, the founders have been doing it since they were 20 years old. These guys are still in their early 40s. They're pretty much running the company, which essentially means they're going to be around for another 20 years. Uh, in most cases, founder-led companies are a little more aggressive and kind of better than professional companies. In my opinion, uh, it's a contestable topic, but I would say they do. So what they've also been doing is they've also been trying to expand on the back of the success in the spicy snack market. They've been expanding into the vegetable and other bean-based markets as well. So it's, it's a company that's growing one brand and kind of growing across different segments and trying to grow other brands as well. What we don't like about it, for a big deal, I'm going to mention some points that we don't like. So what we don't like about this particular deal is even though they say they have a 5.7% market share, the industry itself is highly fragmented. So if you see the industry market share, they'll probably be below 1%. The other thing that is a little bit um, of a, I wouldn't say a concern, but a little bit, uh, that little thing that one needs to be aware of is that the company undertook a pre-IPO round in April 21. Uh, it was led by a group of investors, including Hill House, Tencent, uh, Sequoia, and the valuation at that time was pegged at uh, valuations that were similar to non-food springs, so they're pretty high. Um, and I think that is what kind of is kind of holding the deal back because they already pegged the valuation to a high multiple. But otherwise, the deal looks good to us. Um, as you can see, for the past couple of days, what has happened in the market, companies like non-food spring have not suffered as much as some of the other names. So that means it's relatively resilient and it could come through over the next uh, one or two months. Um, the other company that uh, we really like is Microport uh, Medbot. Now, this company designs, develops, and commercializes surgical robots. It's in pre-revenue stage. They don't make any money. They are mainly concentrating on two products. One is a laparoscopic surgical robot. The other one is an orthopedic surgical robot. Both the products are uh, near the registration approval stage. The orthopedic one is still doing phase three. Uh, the laparoscopic one has already kind of passed the phase three trial. Um, why do we like it? Apart from the segment itself has a very good uh, growth rate. 
in terms of competition, there's only one major global player, which is Intuitive Surgical. Uh, it's listed in the US and it has a market cap of about $100 billion. They sell their robot, uh, which is called Darwin C system, uh, for $2 million a piece, uh, initial setup cost. And then they have recurring revenue from all the disposables linked to the surgical robot. So, what essentially that means is if Micropore MedPoint manages to get things right, which it will be aided by by its parent, which is Microport, which is essentially listed in Hong Kong and is in the medical devices segment. They could undercut Intuitive, at least on pricing terms, within China, and they might even be able to go outside of China if things work out. Obviously, it's still pre-revenue stage, very early days, but because they have a backing for Microport, it kind of seems credible. It, kind of, it seems like the company um, can actually make it work with the trials done. Having said all of that, if I remember correctly, as per the company itself, there were only about 189 surgeries done using robots in China last year. So the sector is almost non-existent. So the entire sector will take a little, little amount of time to kind of grow. Um, it's not something that as soon as they get approval, they're going to start clocking 100 million, 200 million or 500 million dollars of revenue in the first year. Um, it's going to be very slow and steady. It's like a multi-year stock, uh, which if they, things get, uh, if they get things right, sorry, it should put them in a very good place. Now, the next deal that I'm going to kind of talk about again in Hong Kong is uh, an A2S listing, China Tourism Group. Uh, we wrote about it a couple of days ago. Now, technically, we don't consider this to be an IPO uh, because the Asians, as you can see, are, are already listed. But given that the deal size is going to be anywhere from 5 to 10 billion, uh, most probably is going to be in the range of 6 to 7 billion, we cannot not talk about it. So that's the reason it's there. The other reason is there is it's owned by the Chinese government. It has 90% market share in the duty-free segment in China. So if you're thinking about regulation and regulatory action, um, so far the regulatory action has worked in their favor because of the government ownership. Um, an example of that was in June 2020, they bought a 50% stake in Hainan Duty Free. And uh, in July 2020, the regulations were changed for Hainan, where the duty free exemption was raised for domestic tourists. And a couple of other changes were made as well regarding duty free segment. And that kind of helped them to, uh, to register positive growth in 2020, despite most of their historic duty-free revenue kind of collapsing because the airport was shut. The stock is in a good place because of the regulatory backdrop, because of the China tourism whole multi-year growth story. And post-listing is going to be sitting on around $9 billion of cash. Uh, the question we've been asked is, what is it going to do with so much cash? Because they generate a whole lot of cash flow, um, they don't actually need it. So most probably, our guess would be they would acquire some assets overseas uh, where maybe in some areas which are popular with Chinese tourists already, and they kind of try to diversify from there. So it's, it's a good deal to kind of keep an eye on and watch out what happens. Obviously, it won't be like an IPO. It's not going to pop 50-60%, but uh, given the size of the deal, most investors will be able to get a decent amount of allocation in it. Uh, so definitely one on our radar. The next one I'll talk about is a much smaller deal, uh, quite a contrast to the $7 billion. It's probably going to be around $200 to $300 million deal. Uh, it's called APM Monaco. The reason we talk about it is because the brand has been around for about 30 years. It was started in Europe. Uh, it's owned by a European family, but it's headquartered in Hong Kong. 
Um, its sales, even in 2020, uh, it managed to grow its sales because of its exposure to China. It gets about 60-70% of its sales from China. So they've been doing pretty well. Uh, Batme was down, but the company itself, the sales were okay. It's backed by TPG and is family-owned. That way, you don't see any corporate governance issues or any other issues in the stock as such. Having said all of that, it's uh, a very fashion-driven, trend-driven kind of industry, right? One, one year, you get the trends wrong, your sales might be down, so that's always a risk. And then, obviously, it's going to be a relatively smaller deal, uh, not as big as uh, some of the other ones in the market, so the interest will be less. Plus, it's going to be cross-border, so it might not get as much interest as the other deals. Now, before I kind of skip through Hong Kong, I'm going to talk very quickly about two more deals. The reason I'm going to talk about them very quickly is because they're tech deals. So we don't know whether they'll come or not uh, because of what is happening in the market. But the reason I put them there is because VDoctor filed its application proof in uh, March. That means by September, its application proof expires. So if it doesn't launch in the next one month, uh, it's going to have to go back to the drawing board to kind of get be back in the queue with the application proof again. So it might just launch. And the other one, Cloud Village, uh, is rumored to be seeking approval later this week. So they might brave the market as well, even though their peer attention music has uh, not been doing that great. But recent regulation has kind of moved into their direction. So very quickly, VDoctor is uh, backed by Tencent, but Tencent only has a 9% stake. They are a lot more online medical services driven rather than e-commerce driven, uh, unlike uh, Alibaba Health and JD and Pingan Health. They have the largest number of doctors in the network. Uh, so they're actually looking at doing online consulting rather than doing the e-commerce based pharma thing. Moving on quickly to Cloud Village. Cloud Village is backed by NetEase. Uh, NetEase owns about 62% stake in the company. It also has investments from Baba and uh, Baidu. It's the second largest player after Tencent Music, but we've all seen what happened to Tencent Music over the past one week because of the regulatory news that uh, it can't exclusively license new, its content. And that kind of plays positively for this stock. But having said all of that, uh, so far, Cloud Village has not managed to make uh, a positive gross profit. So we are not particularly big fans of the deal, but if it comes, we can cover it and see where the pricing comes in and then we kind of decide where to take it. But definitely want to keep an eye on. The next slide gives you a little bit of IPO pipeline. Uh, I'm not going to go through each one uh, because I think they're kind of, I'm already at the borderline of the time that I have, and I want to cover a little more stuff. So on the left-hand side, you see the deals that I've already filed. There are still quite a few in the pipeline, about $15. We've not even looked, put in the smaller deals, which are less than 515 On the right side are ones that may file or may come this year. Obviously, Pytons is on top, but uh, news has been coming out that they will not list, but I don't think it's possible for them not to list. The news probably should have read they will not list in the US because of the regulatory changes. But given the size that people are saying they're already trading at $400 billion valuation in the private market, um, I think it's only a matter of time before they have to hit the public market. And there are a couple of other big ones in there as well. China, 1K property management, again, might not come because of regulation. But there's FWD, and there are all the deals that are going to move from the ADR pipeline to the Hong Kong pipeline, like Lala Move, Bill Red Move, et cetera. Now, I want to talk just about two more deals across uh, Asia. Uh, just so that we cover something apart from Hong Kong for people who are there who don't kind of uh, look at Hong Kong. One is Kakao Bank. I know the book building is already done and the stock is at a list. The reason I've kind of put it there is because we are very positive on the deal. Uh, we like the whole uh, concept of a digital bank. We like the fact that it's kind of backed by a very strong tech parent. 
Um, it's been able to get 1% market share in just under four years. And even by our projections, where we're building in 50 to 60% revenue growth over the next couple of years, we still like, we're only building in a market share of 2%. So it has a long way to go. Uh, while it's expensive versus local peers, we don't think it's expensive at all versus emerging market peers. And on top of that, uh, depending upon how the lockups work out, it will definitely go to the FTSE and it could go to the MSCI as well. So all of that will kind of uh, help the deal over the first couple of days. The risk on that side is the boundaries with Kakaope are not very clearly defined. So that's something that one needs to kind of uh, look out for. The other one is in India, which is going to launch next week, Debiani. It's the biggest franchiser for Yum in India. It technically owns 60 to 70% of the outlets, not all. It runs KFC and Pizza Hut. Uh, it's backed by a founder who also has another company listed. So CG-wise, he has a pretty decent reputation. So it was a big brand, a decent CG reputation. The market itself for QSR has been growing pretty fast apart from 2018. There's a lot of things to like. The only factor is uh, they haven't done very well in the past compared to people like Jubilant Foodworks. And uh, it's not a sole franchisee, so there are other people who run PF, Pizza Hut and KFC in India as well. That complicates the thing for them a little bit versus others, but uh, definitely want to keep an eye on next week. The next slide kind of is uh, shows you the pipeline across Asia. Now, the pipeline in, in India is very, very transparent. It's a lot more transparent versus some other geographies. So I, what you see is in the left-hand side, I kind of put down the names for India. The biggest one that will come sometime this year or early next year is Flipkart. It's already been pegged at $40 billion valuation. Um, it might raise anywhere from 5 to 10 billion, but most probably in the US because it's majority owned by Walmart and uh, Walmart is listed in the US. The next big one is LIC, but this will probably come in the first quarter of 2022. Uh, the government is doing the groundworks for listing it. And after Zumato's uh, good launch, uh, good kind of performance on the first couple of first day, actually, the next couple of days wasn't good. So, first day, uh, there are a host of kind of big tech names that are in the pipeline. The biggest one of them is Baiju, uh, which is the education ed tech platform. Uh, Paytm has already filed. Uh, it's not so great. NSC has been in the pipeline for quite a long time and there are others as well. Uh, I won't go down the whole list. Apart from India, LG Energy Solution in Korea is the big one for the rest of the year, which is talking about raising $9 billion. Uh, they make batteries for EVs. Um, Grab kind of already filed, but we don't know when it kind of starts trading. Go to as well, we'll look at launch. In Japan, there's Tokyo Metro with at least a billion dollar raising in uh, in Australia, they say games, which is going to raise at least a billion dollars. This is again kind of casino betting that kind of uh, play, um, but they haven't filed neither, but they do have filed yet. Now, before I kind of sign out very quickly in the last one minute, I'll cover something that we cover apart from IPO, which is placement pipeline. So apart from looking at IPOs, we also kind of follow, for, for some of our clients, we follow placements and we kind of keep up with this pipeline of what might come for placement. This slide very quickly, and uh, if you think I'm speaking too fast, that's kind of because I have overstepped the time of five minutes. So bear with me, just last one minute, uh, and uh, I'll kind of wrap up. So what we wrote on uh, right now, just about the uh, start of this week, was the big lockup coming up for Koishu. Now, the stock did really well. We really liked it when it listed. Didn't like where it was trading, but uh, we're positive on the stock. It's gone up 4x from its listing price, and now it's come back all the way below its IPO price, actually, not even here. It has a whole host of pre-IPO investors. Just about three pre-IPO investors own 18% of the stock, which is worth, uh, not 18%, sorry, 26% of the stock, which is worth about $18 billion. So it's going to have a huge overhang. 
obviously with the lockup arrangement nothing given you can't be very sure of the timing um but definitely something's going to happen sooner or later so it's one to keep an eye on in a similar way there's another company in australia called idp education which we wrote on uh, in earlier part of the year now that is owned by 38 universities those universities are kind of spun out they stake in idp to the individual universities and they all have agreed to kind of list at least to sell off at least 15% of the stock before 11 december 2021 and they publicly stated this so that block which will be worth about a billion dollar odd is going to come sometime this year um the stock is pretty expensive ran up um, a, a few days ago on the back of an acquisition and uh, but having said all of that the stock is pretty decent but it's again one to keep an eye on at the risk of speaking for all of the 30 minutes uh, i think i'm going to stop now and uh, yeah i'll just leave it at that side of thank you and step back to michael because i want to leave some time for q and a Thank you very much, Sumit. That's perfectly fine, and we're happy to to uh, let you go over time um, if the content is compelling. And I think yours uh, definitely was. Maybe I can kick things off, uh, Sumit. You briefly touched upon it uh, before, but we have seen uh, China kind of tighten regulations around uh, a number of companies and industries. Uh, and uh of course the the tale of ad group has turned uh, cautionary uh, i guess yeah. so do you think that the this this kind of tendency to tighten regulations will have an impact on the pipeline for the rest of the year it's already had a bit of an impact um uh, in the middle of the year that was when uh, ed listed just about a month ago and the regulators came back and kind of uh, clamped down on didi and two more stocks a uh, full track alliance and uh, kanzun uh, for going ahead with the listing without kind of taking the regulatory permission and they pretty much stated that um, any china listing in the us is off the radar uh, shouldn't be undertaken shouldn't be done so you had this whole pipeline of companies that are looking to list in the us like lala move and little red book and Hello Bike and Simalia FM. I think the pipeline there itself is like ten, fifteen companies. All of them are now in the process of moving to Hong Kong. Now that takes time. So you've gone from literally being on the verge of listing to going back six months. That's one that's happened. Um, the second thing is what we've seen over the last uh, two weeks in the education space. Uh, all the education IPOs are withdrawn basically uh, because they can't list. They are not allowed to take foreign investors. this other thing that has happened is they've also clamped down kind of on the property management companies so there were a couple of big property management firms like china wanke property management and a few more which were looking to list they'll have to wait then obviously there's a tech clamp down uh, which from what we read yesterday kind of encompasses tencent as well which so now if you've covered tencent and you've covered alibaba and you've gone after meetwan with the drivers you have essentially said no one is off the radar So that's obviously going to have an impact on the pipe pipeline. I, have, I mean, I would be naive of me to say it won't. But again, markets, as you know, bounce back pretty quickly. So once things settle down, which from what I'm reading today, already the state media started saying that, you know, everything is not, everything is not lost, and it's not that you need to sell off everything and the kind of moving into the market. Once you have one or two weeks of kind of relatively quiet, once you have maybe a period where nothing happens, then you have one or two or deals which come, which get done, 
if you do okay, then kind of the market opens up again for the others. Now the regulators have already said the deals that come in Hong Kong will not be scrutinized as heavily as the deals that go for ADR. So that's anyways a positive. But um, yeah, the pipeline for now, immediate future doesn't look very, very thick. Um, but as I've been saying that, again, there was news today about two or three more companies looking to kind of launch their Hong Kong IPOs within the next six months to one, five, sorry, five for the Hong Kong IPOs within six months to one year. So if you think about it, they don't have too many places to go because ADR is shut and Shanghai is shut and Shenzhen is shut. So they have to come to the market. It's just a question of when. What about ADRs? There seems to be a, a negative trend there as well. Um, what's, what's your view of those? So I wrote about it a couple of days, almost, I think at the start of the month. So yeah, quite a few days ago. Our view is the ADR market is effectively shut for any tech companies. Uh, anyone who has user data, because the regulators have said, if you have more than 1 million kind of uh, users, you have to come and take approval from CAC before you look to list overseas specifically. And the way they've gone after Didi and the way they've gone after only one or two other uh, ADRs, while they have not said much about companies like Kwashu, who's listed earlier in the year, they have a user base of I don't know, a couple of hundred million. And they were just put on a list in May saying, you need to kind of update your app to be in compliance with security. But there was nowhere near a strict an action of uh, stopping downloads of Kwashu or doing anything else versus some that have gone in under ADR. So essentially, in our view, the ADR market for China is shut. It was already a narrow window because of the US regulations. Now, the US regulations are looking to shut the market. The China regulator is also saying, I don't want you to stay there. I don't know who's looking, apart from the bankers who own the 5 6% or 4% fee versus 1 or 2% in Hong Kong, I don't know who else wants to list in the US right now. Having said that, they could still allow some smaller deals, maybe a biotech deal or some other non-tech deals to go through, just so that uh, people can't say that it's totally shut off. But all the deals are now going to come to Hong Kong, essentially, all the big deals. Right. So maybe uh, it's this leads um, conveniently into a, a bit of a, I guess, broader, maybe bird's eye view type of question uh, that I see from a few attendees here. Um, and it basically, uh, it's basically regarding private investors from other markets who are looking to uh, invest in IPOs in, uh, in Asia, in, uh, in Korea. So for example, one attendee asks, uh, how can they access IPOs in Asia being, while being in Australia or a Singapore private investor being um, uh, accessing uh, Korean IPOs like Kakao? Do you have any uh, kind of thoughts on that? So if you're a private investor, uh, if you are uh, lucky enough to be a high net worth individual uh, with lots of money in the bank, uh, your private bank can probably help you do that because uh, some of these private banks have done their funds and some of them have access to funds where they can go in and institutional trance. If you are a plain old retail investor like me, then essentially you're stuck to a domestic market uh, or you're stuck to buying in the aftermarket. Uh, you can't really go into the IPO because most of these IPOs on the retail side are only for domestic investors. Having said that, we have a couple of clients uh, who run IPO funds. So maybe it's a good time for them to advertise their IPO funds and uh, we can subscribe to their funds and you, through their funds, you're gonna get access to the deals happening uh, across Asia and maybe even globally the IPOs. 
we'll, we'll be waiting to, to hear from them, I guess, in, <laughs> in that regard. Yes, exactly. I, I, I don't think we've figured out Zoom that way, so we can like run a, a, an ad there, but uh, we'll get there. Um, we, we are seeing a, a few promising, well, uh, I say promising, but uh, that's uh, perhaps my opinion, but uh, we are seeing a few big names uh, from Southeast Asia's tech scene uh, trying to target uh, the public markets through uh, SPACs, special purpose acquisition yeah. companies. What is your view of, of that trend, uh, which was very big in the US for a time, but, but seems to be sort of petering out it, especially kind of as we come to the second half of the year. Yeah, so uh, look up on our end, we kind of just looked at two Southeast Asian companies that are looking to take this back to. Uh, one was Grab, and the other one was Property Guru. Now, the thing to note about both these companies is uh, past one or two years have not been great for them. So if you actually look at historic financials, you wouldn't be very bullish in the company. But what a SPAC allows you to do is it allows you to put out forecasts. And uh, I mean, if you ask me to project forecasts for Equitas Research Revenue, I'll obviously project that it goes 3x in three years. Right. Especially if there are no repercussions to me for the forecast. I'm not saying that's what they've done, but I'm just saying SPACs allow you to kind of put out the forecast without having a regulatory repercussion to kind of meet those forecasts. So some companies find that a lot more beneficial rather than going into the IPOs as giving historic numbers, especially when you've not had a very great past one, two years, and then trying to list because obviously investors are going to then put on their own forecast and uh, ask you for valuation depending upon what investors think the forecast is. Versus if you go out and put out numbers, you can always argue your numbers and say no. Uh, because technically, if, if you go for an IPO, you're not allowed to even though the banks put out numbers, which are guided by the companies, but technically the company is not allowed to put out numbers. Yeah. So that's that's something that's happening in the market. The companies themselves are not bad. I, have, I use Property Guru all the time. I use Grab all the time for the taxi and for my rent. So uh, on record, please don't throw me off the apps. Uh, <laughs> but the valuation themselves are a bit of a stretch in our view. Now, at the end of the day, whether you list via SPAC or you list via an IPO, after about one month of trading, it doesn't make a difference. Yeah, no one really cares about how you listed. Once you've been trading for one month, five months, six months, it's just a part of history of how you kind of got there and listed. The same way it's a direct listing. So you have to be very careful about the valuation that you're going to ascribe to it and uh, think about it. It's almost the same process as an IPO, not much different. Uh, just it's a little more public and the company gives you a little more forecast, uh, which may or may not make your life easier as an analyst. Understood. Yeah. It's a good trend. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, uh, it's a good trend to keep an eye on. If one or two of them do well, then yeah, you'll have to see a lot more coming. If the big guys themselves can't do well, then you'll see that I don't. Very much a wait and see kind of situation. As a, as a closing, very quickly, if I ask you to name uh, one favorite deal of yours uh, that's that's coming up, uh, which one would it be? If you put a gun to my head and told me at hundred dollars and where I put all my hundred dollars, if I could, I'm get, not going to go that far. But imagine a figurative it, gun, you know. <laughs> it would have been. Uh, it might have been Zumato last week, but now if you ask me, uh, I'll say Kakao Bank. 
It's coming up next week for listing. I think it should do really well. Obviously, the book bill is already passed. Uh, if you ask me deals that are in the pipeline and that might come through, I would say Microport, Medport, but I personally am a pretty long-term investor. So I'm willing to wait for five, 10 years for the revenue to grow in. Some people are not, so, but that sounds good. Thank you very much for that. And there you have it. Thank you very much, Sumit, for your time today. Uh, thank, you, thank you, everyone, for attending and for uh, sharing your questions. For uh, every, uh, every other question that we uh, perhaps didn't get to, uh, please email us at research at smartkarma.com uh, and we'll make sure to pass on any questions you have to Sumit and Equitas. Sumit, thank you very much once again. Um, thank you, thank and, you Michael. Uh, uh, thanks to Smart Karma and thank you all for uh, attending. It's a pleasure. That's it for this week. If you liked this episode, Please share with your networks and follow Smart Karma on your social media. We're Smart Karma everywhere. And of course, don't forget to visit smartkarma.com for truly independent, differentiated investment research. As always, thank you very much for listening and see you at the next one.